Well, welcome and thank you for joining me. Joseph Michelli here with my guest, Kim Crowder, and we are streaming live on all kinds of platforms right now, Kim. So thanks for joining me. I met Kim after some colleagues of mine who were at Forbes. We were talking about who are the great people to help organizations with diversity, inclusion, equality, anti-racism. And uh, your name came up. I know Forbes has talked a lot about you uh, in various publications as, as a person that they need to hire now as an anti-racist educator. I have referred Kim out along with uh, other colleagues of hers to clients of mine. And here's the bottom line. I often get asked, well, what, what should we do if we care about customer experience? How should we be dealing with some of these current racial tensions, equality issues? And uh, my honest answer is I don't have a clue. Um, this is outside of my area of expertise, and rather than acting like a do, it's important for us to get real about it. So Kim's with us today. Kim, thanks for joining us. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into this particular anti-racism education consulting space. Sure. So my background is in marketing and communications, actually. So I, my degree is in business administration and marketing and communications. So I've worked at every level of employment starting at you know that entry level internship all the way up to the executives uh, that boardroom level. And in this doing this work, there's often conversations, especially when you're talking about marketing and communications about how to make this messaging happen externally. Well, as I was moving things forward and growing in my career, what I was finding was that the challenge is that the messages weren't happening internally. The conversations weren't happening. The equity wasn't happening. Uh, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism. And so I started doing this work, frankly, uh, based on how I was being treated and what I was seeing. So little by little, I started to really learn. I have some mentors who've been really great for me, did a lot of training. And then I started helping organizations do this work as well, particularly starting off with the library industry where they are serving folks globally at the global level, but knowing that that industry is often about, I think it's in between 70 to 80% white women. And so knowing that that was, of course, going to be a barrier, I started training and educating people on that. And before I knew it, I was full blown into this work. So full blown into the work means what? I mean, what what is it? You know, I, I refer people because I figure that we don't have the conversations happening, right? Or we may be doing better than we think. Or since this is often about power in my mind, like the people who have power aren't super motivated to understand the, the dynamic of power. So maybe you can give me a little bit of what do you do when you first get in and help people orient themselves to this, this phenomenon? Yeah, there's a, I'm glad you asked that question because there's a couple of things. The first thing is this, and where I want to start is the before we ever work with an organization. Because the big thing that we say is if your executives, your upper level management, your leadership is not on board, we are not on board. And the reason is, is because we can't do anything if that support does not exist. We also don't wanna frustrate people within the organization who wanna see this move forward, but then feel like on the staff level that they're kind of pushing against the ceiling that won't move. And so that is for us the first piece of that. But then even in that, we assess organizations to see, is your organization even ready to start having these conversations? Um, I think, Joseph, you and I have had this 
kind of a bit of this conversation where, where you get into an organization and they say they want one thing, but you realize that there's this whole other piece around empathy, around uh, vulnerability within the organization, around communication that doesn't allow for another piece to happen. And so there's, at, you know, there's a certain level of that where we go, wow, we can't work within this environment if you aren't here. So we start even having those conversations early to say, where are you all as an organization? And here's some things that you may wanna do before we start working together maybe three months down the road. Well, so, and I think that's the beginning, right? I mean, you have to assess the level of commitment, the level of alignment and leadership. And sometimes, you know, maybe a C, the, the CEO might want to be moving something forward, but then you might have other members of the team who have other priorities and don't understand how this fits in. and. You know, one of the things that I've loved about conversations with you in the past is that, that I think we see this as like an add-on, like yeah. diversity, inclusion, equality, anti-racism. It's like an add-on, and it's a really in-fashion add-on right now, right? Uh, uh, it can be in vogue for as long as the social conversation about racism is, is hot. This is really much more in the DNA of an organization, right? So when you start thinking about it, you really have to think about everything you do and the filter of leadership. Absolutely, and, and and I'm so glad you said that because here's what that means. That means you're looking at your processes and at what point within your processes does a diverse or a, a, a voice of a protected class even enter the room? And even in that, often what we find is where people say, you know, we're really diverse, we have a ton of, of women in the organization, but then you go, what is their, what are their backgrounds? And so even that can be a bit of a challenge to help organizations understand, you know, there are continuous ways that you have to reframe, reframe what diversity looks like within your organization. If you're in tech and you say what diverse looks like to us is having, you know, we have a large amount of, 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 of Asian employees, South Asian or otherwise, and we say that includes diversity, then you go, but does it at that mm -hmm. point? Because now we're talking about what industry standards are versus how to start stretching beyond just kind of the status quo and the norm. So for me, I, you know, one of the things that was kind of painful about George Floyd, and, and I really hate to admit this, is that I, I somehow underestimated how much white privilege I've had in my life. Um, I've, I fell into a number of different traps and I want to share them with you and kind of think about how they affect organizational life. So one is I was raised by parents who told me never talk about race, never talk about politics, never talk about sex in public, right? So like as a fundamental rule, those were conversations not to be had. Right. Um, and then beyond that, I think there was this general sense that that there's been social reparations, you know, there's been efforts to bring along underserved populations over time. And it's been a long time ago that all these injustices happened. And so how do you deal with people who aren't malicious? I mean, they're not intentionally, uh, you know, creating some inequality. How do you deal with those long standing subtle messages? Right. Uh, so a couple of things. What's really interesting is because I want to draw first, some parallels between white culture and, for instance, me, black culture. And so one of the things you said was we were taught never to talk about race. And what's crazy is that in black culture, you talk about race at the dinner table, you talk about race over wine, you talk about race at the amusement park. I mean, like it is such a part 
of our conversation where when you say, uh, you think about saying, how do we make this messaging subtle? The challenge is that we come from a totally different spectrum on this, right? That gap is so wide um, as far as what's norm. And so- This is really comfortable for you and it's not comfortable for me, but it's the right (laughs) thing to be doing, right? I mean, for us to say, okay, whatever our places we started with, we got to find some common ground in the now, right? And what I think could be most helpful is that we don't run from what you just said. That we say, okay, even though I may be coming from a very different place, if that means that I have to accelerate a little bit in order to get to where I need to be, I'm willing to do that. And and I I parallel this to, you know, in the ways that when we show up to, to college, sometimes you show up to college and go, oh my gosh, we did not learn this in high school. Or you get a new job and you're like, I know I can do this job, but maybe I don't have all the skill sets. What do you do, Joseph? You go do homework to figure out how to do it. You call a mentor, you phone a friend, but you're willing to do the work that it takes to get you there. And so really what this is about, this is the same process that you use for any success. And so making sure that people are dialing into that and being comfortable with that reality. You know, it's interesting that you say that because we make it, you know, we make it seem like it's something far more insurmountable than it is. It's just another knowledge deficit where you have to be willing to engage in it. But why would I want to? Right. Like, I think there's the other issue. Uh, I might want to learn my job uh, since I'm about to go and do it for a long time. Right. But why do I need to really understand the racial divide? What's What's in it for me, if you will? Um, right, right. So um, when I, when you say what's in it for me, I'm going to assume you're saying, and you can correct me if that's not what you meant, what does that mean for me as a white man? Yeah, I know. I think as a, a white man, leader in power that hasn't accepted it, uh, maybe those are the same. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So... Frankly, that's a, that that can be challenging, and you're and and I want to highlight something that you said is that there is a, another piece of it, and what that other piece of it is, is that there is a perceived loss of power if I, in some way, choose to include another group of people, and we have these power dynamics in in many areas, right? We see this in many areas, this idea of inclusion, and so how does this benefit? Uh, white men, one of the things I like to say is, what does it take to know that this level of suffering is happening or to even not know that this level of suffering is happening and to be able to walk by it? What does that mean internally for you, right? What are you turning off? What, What is the creativity that you're turning off? What are the levels of thinking power? What's the impact that you are missing if you indeed are walking around kind of with this part of yourself muted. And so I really want to dial in on that because it it really isn't about the fact that if I turn this on now, I can help other people. It is you're helping yourself. This is very much so about growth as a person and really helping particularly white men to be the leaders they were born to be not the leaders that they were created to be, right? And, you know, in society, but who they were born to be and who you were born to be is your absolute highest self. And that is a person who understands and who's open to equity and inclusion. 
So this is a, you know, a background story for me is that I got a scholarship to the University of Denver. And the requirement is that all these diverse races live together in the same physical building throughout our four years of college. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an incredibly enlightened scholarship, right? Because I think one of the greatest gifts is familiarity, which breeds this ability to forgive the sense of otherness. They're like, we're all in this together thing. And so it was a real gift to me. But I, I think over the course of time, there was that created thing, the thing you're talking about, where it just wasn't front and center. If I look about, across organizations that I was a part of, um, I don't think that that was a conversation we were having in any meaningful way. It was a requirement. It wasn't a willful awakening of that mute button, if you will. Mm -hmm. So now I think socially we're there, right? Like there's a greater chance in this time for leaders to say, I have white privilege and I haven't acknowledged it. Now what? So my now what, Kim, is to refer people who have incredible talent, who, who may be of color, as opposed to just thinking of, you know, who's my closest person in my network who might not be of color, right? Is that the way we go or is that like weird in some way? You know, what's so funny is that I literally just got off the call with a, a white woman who does consulting. She does leadership and management consulting um, for some Fortune 100 companies. Literally, Joseph just got off the phone with her. And one of the things that she said was that she said, the organizations that I work with, especially because I'm dealing with management, often all white, often male. And then they're starting to ask me about doing diversity, equity, inclusion work. Why, why does that feel natural? Um, she's a white woman. So why would it feel natural that she would be the person who would be the expert in this? And so what I really feel strongly about, you know, regarding this is that we have to start talking very honestly about racism, anti-racism, and start, start folks being open um, to receive the tools to even have this dialogue and to have that enlightenment. And the way to do that is to find someone like myself and bring them in. And so uh, one of the things that I shared with her, and frankly, this came out of a conversation that you and I had had, was saying, this is where you can step in and say, I know someone who could be really great at this, but also to say, I've noticed that this is how your organization is structured and having that uncomfortable conversation and saying, here's how I think you all could really benefit. Because what I told her was, uh, there are plenty of people who are on this road to their, you know, in their anti-racism journey, we all are, if you decide to move in that direction. But if you, you know, you can kind of move in such a way where you don't do the vocal part. I can read all the books, I can have all of the private conversations, but if I am not willing to risk something, and be vocal and to use my privilege in such a way that it amplifies other voices, then it is very incomplete. We are not talking about anti-racism. Yeah, it's interesting because on LinkedIn, kind of right on the heels of George Floyd, I did whatever my mea culpa was, right? Uh, and some, uh, some person in, in corporate life wrote me on LinkedIn and said, well, you need to do more than just speak about it, right? Like you've got to get into the to the weeds with it. And so I asked for a reading list and she provided the reading list and I start reading and then I start reading things beyond it. And uh, and then she says, and if you think that's good enough, it's not good enough, right? You gotta keep 
having conversations and they're not going to be easy. And I think that was one of the things that I found really striking is that she was foretelling that the deeper you get into this, probably in many ways, the harder it is. It seems noble philosophically, right. but to really change it, you know, I, I look at where change is happening and maybe there's some change in, in policing. Maybe there's some change in the judiciary. I'm not sure, but there's certainly is a need for change in corporate life. So help me understand. We got you coming in, right? You come in, you say to people, I, uh, you know, I need to see what the commitment is at top. I need to assess the environment here. You do that. And then what are some of the things that start happening after that? Because I think that's where it gets hard, right? Um, okay, yep. we now know what is and we got alignment. Now what? Yeah, you really start to look at what the, uh, the vulnerability level is and what the level of the, how do I say this? The um, the acknowledgement and acceptance level is for an organization. And here's what I mean by that. I talked to one company and I like to give examples because I like folks to get a sense of what this actually looks like in the real world, because we could talk around it. But I, I like to really name things. And so I was talking to an organization and, and one of the things they said was, you know, we brought in someone and it didn't go well. And I said, OK, what didn't go well exactly? And what it turned out to be was that the um, that that something had happened in the company, and because it happened in the company, they brought in someone to do some training, but they didn't communicate what happened in the company, and so staff was confused as to why that training was happening. But what it did was it made the trainer look like they were the ones responsible for it not connecting. And so in something like that, the first, the biggest thing I would do is to ask the company to hold yourself accountable and be honest about that miss, that gap. And so that is, you know, kind of an idea of what that first step is. It is to say, how can we really start talking about this in a way that the company accepts liability and accepts missteps for one, because there's no way that a consultant can come in and fix all of the issues around it, especially if there hasn't been a level of acceptance. So that is really the first place. And we do that before we ever hit training. That training part happens after we start having a regular communication and kind of doing a SWOT analysis in the organization to you know, get a real sense of bearings where we all are so that all the cards are on the table. Now we can start talking about training. Now we can start talking about education. And even in that, we start with level setting. We start at baseline. And then you know, people are often saying, we want to learn how to talk about race. That's the last session. <laughs> that's the last that's 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 part of the you know closer to the promised land i just need to make sure that we're all on the same page that you have the exact language that we aren't dancing around things like white supremacy and our um, systematic racism that we're naming those so that as you look to have this dialogue that we're all coming from the same place and that if you need to google or read up on something that that exact language you'll be able to find that wherever you go out to to learn and gain more so so let's assume you go into an organization and they think they want this mm -hmm. but as they start to look at it a little bit more they're saying geez you know this is a lot more than I was thinking. You know, it's gonna, I'm going to have to look at my hiring practices. I'm going to have to look at the way we communicate. I'm going to have to look at promotions, advancements. 
uh, you know, I'm going to have to look at policies that have created system systemic racism. Uh, ah, I don't know. You know, like this seemed like a good idea. Right. How do you deal with that fear? Because it's got to get to a point where, you know, I've always kind of you know, believed that love is more powerful than fear, but that fear is pretty dang powerful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are, interestingly enough, what we find is that when a company is at the place where they're uncomfortable, but still willing to move forward, oftentimes they have a champion at that upper level leadership who is saying, we committed to doing this work. And here's why it's still important. So we typically find that that's why it's important to have someone either at the either at the board of director level where that pressure is happening anyway, or someone who is at that peer level, you know, in that boardroom um, who can openly have that dialogue. Because frankly, what you have to kind of have someone who's saying, nope, we got to keep moving forward internally and externally. But also, I will say this, Joseph, we start off at the assessment level. And frankly, if if a company is not ready to move forward beyond that, we don't push so hard that we're going to ruin your company's structure. And I, I, ruin is not even the right term, right? Um, because if you're not doing this, your company structure is not at its best anyway. Um, but frankly, we start there to kind of dig our, you know, dip our toe in the water together to see if it's a match. Does it make sense? And then once we get there, if we can get to a place where we really start naming out things through a SWOT analysis and then really starting to name some goals and get a sense of conversation around what it's going to take and a company is like, yes, we're still ready to go, then we know we found the right partner. But if we get this major amount of resistance, we say, hey, why don't we put a pin in it? Maybe we keep in touch. And here's some things that you can do over the next few months, over the next year that can get you to a place to work with us. But we don't force those relationships, nor do we frankly convince people that, yes, you need to do it. We partner along with folks in order to move this forward. You know, I, I think maybe it was Anthony Robbins who said people change from inspiration or desperation. But I, I do think you look at uh, we're, we're doing this on the, the afternoon after the NBA postpones its schedule during the playoffs. Right. There's a there's something going on in society right now where things are disrupted uh, yeah. around race. There are deaths at you know, not only deaths of African-American men, but there are deaths in the protest environment. It's yeah. a incredible time. All, all of that in a pandemic, too. Is this amount of upheaval going to sustain this movement or do you think we peak and it's I mean, has it already started to drop off uh, some months after George Floyd? Uh, so. I want to talk about three things based on what you just said. One, wh what we saw happen in the NBA, the WNBA. We've seen it through Starbucks. We've seen this through many organizations is that staff is learning their power in moving this forward. And I think that that is so powerful when you talk about checks and balances within organizations, because I see people who are saying people are coming to me saying our staff is not happy with where we are. And so that sparked movement. You know, so one of the that's that healthy peer pressure <laughs> that I think, you know, we all should have in our lives. So that's one. But also you talked about, will this be, you know, long, a long term change? We hope so. We've never been here before, have we? Right. We've never seen I, I was watching watching Angela Davis. If 
you all, if someone doesn't know who Angela Davis is, please, by all means, she's a freedom fighter. She's been around many years and she is an elder in this fight and so absolutely wise. And one of the things she said was, I have never seen this global sort of um, uh, uh, movement towards this. She said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And so you wonder if part of this quote unquote perfect storm of everything is a part of what can move something forward. Everything is a bit silenced and very focused. And you wonder if in any other climate, could it be happening like this? Now, what I'm not saying is that the death of people of color, that that is okay by any means. I, you know, I'm not saying that protesters dying is okay. I want to make sure that's very clear. But what I am saying- it's not a violent protest, because I think that's the reaction of kind of those who say, I could go with you up to the point that people start destroying property or taking other people's lives in this cause. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I also want to be careful that, that even in framing that language, even in when people say that kind of thing, they are very much so often have, have a picture in their head of one group of people, particularly black people who are causing X, Y, Z. Right. And we know that's not the case because of what we saw happen. Well, yeah, the murder, the murder the other day was a, a young white man with a pretty powerful weapon on his hands. Right. And and so, you know, even the way that we're framing these conversations and talking about it, one of the things that we do in one of our training is we play this game called Pictures in Our Head. And and it sounds bizarre that we do when we play games, but it's a really great way to get people to think critically around um, anti-racism around this work. And what that is, is where we kind of give folks a list of qualifiers around, uh, uh, you know, think about in your head, if I said big, big red dog, what happens? So we start there, right? We start with something that's really benign. That's, you know, oh, I know Clifford. But then we move that forward to some things that m people may not want to admit that that's what shows up. But what that tells you is, is that language matters hmm. and the way that we frame things matters. And so what happens is, is when people say we don't want violent protests, we uh, we don't want people who are, you know, this uh, upheaval, you know, there's language that's used. And that language turns our brains onto a particular group when, in fact, that's not the whole story. So really, the question is, when you when I say uh, I'm OK up to the point of nonviolent protests, mm -hmm. then the question is, what picture is in my head when I think of violent protests? Right. And am I already infusing a kind of a racist overlay on the phrase violent protests? Because right. if so, then I need to challenge that. Assuming right. I challenge that and assume that I am. Uh, equal opportunity labeler of violent protest in my images. Mm -hmm. Does that then get us to agreement or is there still something more? I mean, because I can't imagine you would want violent protest because it would probably undermine our ability to find a common ground, right? Right. So here's what's funny about that. We, and, and, and I want to, you know, this is such, we're treading on, such nuanced territory, which I thank you for going here, but I wanna provide not necessarily an answer, but a, another side of that coin. We celebrate wars all the time. 
We celebrate victories in this country around war all the time. But where we draw lines is around who gets to in some way enact and take a hold of what war does. Hmm. And then, right? Once yeah. those groups of people do that, all of a sudden it's rioting. We use words like rioting. So uh, this is not me saying, yes, I excuse it. I'm saying, again, it is very much so around, you know, we call things mass murderers, mass murders, for instance. Um, it is very much so even in that viewpoint that is a kind of a white supremacist viewpoint, right? War is fine. But yeah, a just war is fine, right? That's the key here. Yeah, right. And the question may be, you're saying this could be a just war. And then maybe I, as a you know white person, wouldn't necessarily accept that this is a just war, not a war that requires violence. Uh, let me let me take it to uh, just a just a comment that was raised by someone, Sarah, who's just an incredibly good person, says asking the right questions matter. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? I mean, particularly when it comes to this race dialogue, that this is a lot about asking the right questions. And thank you, Sarah, for that for that that comment. Yeah, I guess I, I would wonder asking the right questions of whom, around what. I'm not quite sure the full context of that. But, um, but if you think about it, in most business contexts, it's going to be asking leaders the right question. I mean, I imagine you're going in and asking the right questions, yeah. right? Like questions that people aren't normally asking themselves. Absolutely. So yes, in that context, absolutely asking the right questions matter. And, and also asking the questions in a way that gives people room to come to their own conclusions, right? So this is not me asking a question to answer the question. This is, I really have to come from a place, and this is an anti-racism work in general, where you come from a place of wanting to understand and less so judge, right? Um, because if I can understand the why behind how an organization is moving, then I can provide an accurate, accurate diagnosis, I can provide an accurate solution, um, or I can at least get down to the root of it. If I'm saying, okay, let me get, you know, at least asking questions around that. So yes, asking the right questions matter, but the framing and the why we're asking it and our our uh, positioning in, in asking has to be from a place of empathy and understanding. All right, so let's get really tactical, all right? Let's, let's assume I'm middle manager in whatever company. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though our company has not gotten on the bandwagon of anti-racism or equity. Um, we may give some lip service to diversity and inclusion. We probably have a course on it at onboarding, very short. Uh, but really, this organization is racist in whatever way. Uh, what do I do? I'm in the middle of an organization. Just keep my mouth shut and look for another job? Or what would you recommend? Yeah, that's a big one. And, and, and the reason why it's a big one is because, frankly, for the most part, all of... Uh, Every organization operates in some way at a, at, at a level in which we've embraced racism as the norm, period. And so now the levels of that and how, how comfortable folks are with trying to dismantle that, that is what is different within organizations. So in that, when you say, you know, I'm a mid-level management, I've noticed some things that have happened. Um, it's also interesting who, like, are the, what, what's their own racial ethnic background as far as you know, starting to move this forward and what the, the implications could be based just on that. So if we're talking about someone who is uh, black, 
that there's a lot that goes into deciding to say, I'm going to speak out about this. And I can say that from personal experience because of the alienation that can happen uh, and the ways that you can be driven out of an organization. Also, when you deal with intersectionality of women and LGBTQIA+. But I'm just going to come at this from another uh, place where if you're saying, if I'm a white person and I'm in my organization and I'm saying I'm noticing these things and they don't seem right, I would say risk something by saying something, right? Uh, because here's the deal. And why? Again, I'm not trying to be difficult. I and, and this is actually more of a rhetorical question, but why not leave it alone and let people who are being marginalized band together and raise the banner on this thing? Yeah. You know, it all depends on how you are you comfortable looking yourself in the mirror, seeing injustice, seeing pain and walking past it? You know, we went, we talked about this before, about this kind of shutting some things off. And so <laughs> the why should it matter? One, on a human level, it just should, right? Mm -hmm. We should all care about other people's pain. We should all care about, and, and to understand that we are also victims because when you start to look at, and I'm just going to go political for a quick second, but when you start to look at voting and how people vote, oftentimes people are willing to vote against their own self-interest, oftentimes when, it, when, when we've decided that it would impact another race in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. I can go into that, I won't touch a ton of that, but we see this vicious cycle where we all become victims of, of being held hostage of this systematic race, racist system. And so if the, if the question about why should I carry is, is are you, can you look yourself in the eye every day, every morning when you get up, are you comfortable with you know, the kind of life you're living? And then the question also is, who do you wanna be on the other side of, you know, once things feel like, quote unquote, they cleared up, this isn't trending, which we see less of it now, and we also see less dedication to it. But who have you decided you wanted to be? And who do you want your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren to say you were around this as a person? All right, so I'm going to get really philosophical here. You know, from a, like a psycho psychological perspective, we are all prejudging situations, right? Based on past experiences, we're saying I'm not going to go left because going left is dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. I, because in the past, going left was not good for me. Yeah. Uh, even if today things have changed when I turn left, I'm being very, very strange about with this question. But my point is you learn certain patterns of behavior and you don't think about them all the time. You just kind of operate from that modus operandi. And then, and then lo and behold, the world may not even be that way anymore. Maybe that was just a a fluke experience you had with somebody of a different race, or it's a story that was told to you that you believed meant that there was fear and danger there. And so you voted to uh, make sure that those people who are fear, you fear and that don't get a, an advantage, whatever that is, you know, I, I get where you're saying about like not wanting to lose your humanity and opening yourself up. And God, that's really where I, I'm at a point in my career now where it's so much easier to do than maybe when I was fearful of not getting my way up the hill and I had to keep other people from, maybe other people were going to take the hill from me. I mean, like so, those are so ancient now. I feel so eager to do this, but I just don't know how. So the first thing is I need to see it and I need to say something about it. Yeah. And also the know-how, there's a big part of education that is so important. And now more than ever, there's a lot of really beautiful work being done. 
And I would encourage people that as you're going to do this work, particularly if you're, you know, if you're someone particularly um, hinged on um, anti-racism and uh, uh, racial equity, there are beautiful books written by people of color, black indigenous people of color and people of color that you can read. And I encourage that because the more that we're willing to be empathetic and hear from each other, from people who are different than us, that is powerful. So uh, we know Ibram X. Kendi wrote um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. This man is a genius. Um, you can find a TED Talks by him. This information is super available. Um, we have uh, Austin Channing uh, Brown, who is a, a young writer who is really doing some great work. There are a plethora of ways to learn. And so I say start, you know, start educating yourself about what this is. And then from there, having some starting to, you know, make sure that the relationships that you are building, that you are looking outside of what is um, maybe natural or easy. And that's not to say we have to be best friends, but that is saying kind of turning on that light to say, you know, what, how am I, am I receiving information about certain groups from real people? or from you know, some sort of messaging that's been crafted and, and created for me to believe whether it's true or not. And so those are two ways that I really say is a great place to start. And then um, in this, you know, this speaking up, because I think that's where you're getting at, you know, how to start this conversation you know, at work and saying something. Um, it, I think you, you can start little by little. And when you notice something happen, you can like, for instance, if someone uh, if someone of color says something and you notice that the room ignores them because this happens, this is a very common one. And then the 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 white guy over here says it, and all of all of a sudden, it's the greatest idea <laughs> that anybody. I'm often on that guy, right? So why would I want to say, wait, uh, I I shouldn't have even just what they said, right? I mean, I think that's the hard part. Is that you know, if you don't you don't even notice it, but if you do notice it, you're saying reference back to the original source of that idea, give them full credit, point out that that, that wasn't uh, received with the same warmth that it should have been. Right, and, and the reason why the education piece is so important is so that you can start to notice. One of the things you said was, I, it's not something I would have even noticed. And so the more that you can start educating yourself, and again, turning on, Right. Turning on that 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 filter, turning on, you know, opening your eyes and, and unblinding yourself in certain areas so that you can recognize it. That is where your strength comes from. And that takes time. And so I really encourage people to give yourself the room to grow um, just like you would in any other area. You don't have to come out of the yard blowing. But what if you could get what, what if you did one one, you know, did something every day to get you closer uh, to that that could be sustainable in the long term? Because the goal of this is to be sustainable in the long term. This is a lifelong work. And so being committed and making sure that you make that choice early is so important. So we've got about five minutes left in our time together. If anybody wants to ask a question of Kim, I open up the floor to you. Just go ahead and type in a comment. And we'll we'll address it and respond to it. Uh, you know, I talked about the middle level person in organization speaking up, but let's assume I am a, a leader in an organization. I might not be the CEO. I am a leader though. And I, I am expected to speak up uh, whenever I see something untoward in the business or something that will negatively affect the business. How do I have this conversation? How do we bring this to the leadership team or how do we start exploring some support from people like you 
sure. to help us move through this this place. Yeah, I will say that uh, be ready for the challenge because it is going to be a challenge. And I can tell you one thing that I did specifically as a leader um, when I was in this position. So I was I was at the director level. Of course, I wasn't you know on the the seat in the C suite. But one of the things I did was made a requirement for my staff that every year we did some sort of training around a protected class, a protected group. And we openly, so I started that dialogue for, at that time, an all white team around as we are you know, creating uh, messaging, as we are starting to look at processes and we're starting to look at the way we communicate with different communities, how do we start thinking internally about that? And so a, a manager at any level can begin to open the door to those conversations and make those conversations safe for everyone involved. That next step is, you know, sometimes it's it's like the chiseling of a rock and you talk about it a little bit, you talk about it a little bit more, and then you pull some data out around it and you say it in this meeting as it relates to something that people would consider totally different, but you wrap it up in that. And so it is the more that you can bring this into conversations around every area, right? Not just HR, because you know often people quarantine diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism in HR, but think about your business processes and then you start to bring it up in areas where people um, can easily, you know, try to say, no, it doesn't affect this. And, and then tie it in some way, sadly, that we often have to tie it to the bottom line for people to get on board. Yeah. Do it. Well, all I, all I can say is the word quarantine. I wasn't expecting it to come up in the context of HR. So it just uh, it's come to my ear in a different way lately. Uh, all right. So let's let me ask you just a series of quick questions. OK, yeah. uh, how do you know you're not racist? Whoa, gosh. Ah. So it's not even about being not racist. It's about being anti-racist. And I would just I would dare to say that we are all on that journey. Hmm. Okay. So um, what has been the most painful thing about being black? Yeah. Um, being demonized just because of the color of my skin. And that happens often in corporate America uh, to the point of, of illness where it takes a uh, toll on your body and your, your psychological health. What's the one thing you would wish more white people knew yeah, that racism affects them too. Wow, okay. And so tell me just one more time how it affects me. Why am I not, other than being lacking in the compassion and humanity, uh, what is it that, how am I hurting yeah. if I view you as less than me? Sure. Uh, one of the, the things I think I mentioned is that, you know, voting against and, and, and uh, really being in favor against policies and, uh, initiatives and things that at the end of the day uh, don't benefit you. So voting and going against things that that would impact you in a positive way because of racism, you see that as a negative when in fact you could be winning from that too. Um, so uh, it's making you sick. <laughs> it's making you sick, but also um, this desire to want to be the best you, if that is true, if you want to be the best you, this has to be a part of the conversation. There's no way around it. Um, it especially when you look at leaders who want to impact and who want to really um, move forward change in general, 
we know that the, the population shift is changing, right? We know that who is going to be the majority in this country is changing. And so if you don't learn that now, you are not going to be ready when that shows up in the future in order to be successful in, in your area of business. 45 minutes in and I feel like we're just getting started, but we will end it there as promised. I'm so grateful for your time. You want to learn more about Kim Crowder. You see her uh, website right there on the bottom banner. You see it right wherever it is. Okay, there it is. Uh, KimCrowderConsulting.com. Check it out. Uh, I want to let you know that Kelly and my team was uh, requiring us all to read the book on how to be an anti-racist. So uh, she's uh, kind of pushing our organization. Uh, in that direction as well. So thank you so much for your time. Learn more about how to bring Kim Crowder into your organization, kimcrowderconsulting.com. And uh, we're going to continue to be doing these uh, now on Thursdays at 1230. Uh, Kim set the time for the entire series now. We're going to be doing it this time because that's when she was ready. Uh, we're looking at people like Horst Schultze, the founder of the Modern Day Ritz Carlton. Uh, there's so many great people. Ellen Rohr going to talk to us about where did the money go. There's a lot of cool folks planned in future live streams. Let your friends know if you liked it. Uh, please go ahead and hit like or do something like that. Share this stream after it's uh, downloaded uh, out to uh, your friends and family. And let's continue the conversation. If you didn't like it, don't tell anybody. Please don't tell anybody. Please. Right. Exactly. All right. So with that, we say thank you. Bye, Kim. Really grateful you were here.